welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. If you would, folks, please turn to Luke chapter 21. Titled this one, The Day of the Lord. As you turn there, I'm going to read a parallel account from Matthew that uh, is specific on the timing of this event. Uh, we had just two weeks ago, if you remember, discussed in Luke chapter 21 that the desolation of Jerusalem was to be followed by nearly 2,000 years now of Gentile domination and rebellion. Jesus calls it the time of the Gentiles, or the times of the Gentiles, uh, where there is a period that will climax, Matthew 24 says, with a great tribulation. So we return to our study of future events. And if you are an eschatology buff, like I said, you're going to want to write some of these passages down. Um, The things yet to come. Today is going to include some extraordinary material. And... uh, to place a time stamp on our passage in Luke 21, verse 25 to 28, to put a time stamp on that, as you look at Luke 21, I'm going to read to you first Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29, which describes the same event, but with added detail. There's also an account in Mark, but with no more detail, so I'm not going to go there. Um, as you listen... This is the sudden return of Christ, the same event I read to you earlier in 2 Peter chapter 3. This is the day of the Lord. Matthew writes, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And the sign... Of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and of great glory, with great glory. Uh, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Sky there in your translation might be heavens, um, meaning from above, sky, heavens. Um, shouldn't surprise us with that passage because Hebrews tells us that of the angels, are they not uh, ministering spirits sent out to render aid to those who are to inherit salvation? They are uh, spirits dispatched by God. So Matthew says he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the four directions, north, south, east, west, from one end of the sky to the other. Notice with Matthew here, this occurs after the tribulation. When at the blow of a trumpet, 1 Corinthians 15, 52 actually says the last trumpet God's elect seem to be gathered to the sky, gathered upward by the angels. Our parallel account, 
this is recorded in Luke chapter 21, reads like this beginning in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear at the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things take place, or begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing nigh. Near, right? Your redemption is drawing nigh. Folks, there, there's no mistaking. There's no mistaking that these events describe the return of Christ. The, the sun, moon, and stars will fall dark. All nations of the earth will, uh, will be in dismay as the seas roar, as the heavens are shaken. All of creation, heavens, and earth will be thrown into a great tumult. A great tumult. Peter calls it a day of judgment. A day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. It will be such a, a cataclysmic event. Man will faint at the fear of the anticipation of judgment coming upon the world. That, that, great, that Greek word for faint here is only seen in this one place in the New Testament. And it means to, uh, to breathe out, to, to stop breathing, to expire. Folks, people are going to be literally scared to death on the earth on this day. The terror is going to be so immense that some non-Christians will, uh, will recoil. They will shrink back as, as the world caves in around them, collapses around them in judgment. This same day, this same day is described with great detail in Luke chapter 17. Uh, we looked at that last November, if you remember. We looked at that last November, learning how Jesus will, his return will be sudden like lightning. I see heads nodding. Yeah. People will be utterly unprepared as the day of judgment that fell upon Noah and of Lot. Jesus said, just as in the days of Lot, they were eating, they were drinking, buying and selling, they were planting, they were building. But on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, remember the angels grabbed him by the hand, seized him by the hands, him and his wife and his daughters. On that day it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same, says Jesus, on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And Luke 17 there also is describing the day of the Lord. Second Peter, chapters 2 and 3, uh, uh, part of which I read to you earlier. That's a mere reflection, folks, of Luke chapter 17. Peter, Peter even uses the same examples. Noah, Lot, he says, on this day of the Lord, there will be mockers saying, where is the promise of His coming? 
and Peter pronounces in verse 10, on that day of the Lord, uh, that day of the Lord, it will come like a thief. Again, this is the day of the Lord. It will be a day, says Peter, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. When? In that day. In that day. You should also notice the similarities of uh, of Peter's description with the, the cosmological signs that Jesus references in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. The, 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 the state of the sun, the moon, and the stars, they'll fail to give light. The stars, sun, moon will fail. The heavens are shaken. The heavens are shaken. Um, Peter describes the old heavens as passing away with a roar and the elements of the heavens and earth being melted down and being destroyed with intense heat. Peter repeats that twice. Make sure nobody's misunderstanding. All these passages, Luke 17, Luke 21, Matthew 24, 2 Peter 3, all remarkably describe the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's sudden return, that day that He consummates His kingdom on earth, His glorious kingdom. 2 Peter says, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, in verse 7. And in verse 10, with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Folks, God's first creation, the original creation, it's going to be utterly annihilated in that day. Utterly annihilated when Christ returns. That is the day of the Lord. So it's very important, very important to recognize what Jesus also says about this very same day in Luke chapter 17. A day that encompasses the whole earth. The whole earth. Both night and day. This this is global. Um, He declares on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. At the same time, there will be two women grinding at the mill on the other side of the earth. Uh, One will be taken, another will be left. He says there will be two standing in the field. One will be taken, another will be left. And we learned last November, as I'm reinforcing today, this is the day of the Lord. These verses do not describe a pre-tribulation rapture. These verses, all right? Even John MacArthur, which everyone knows, I greatly respect, greatly admire him. Even John MacArthur, who is a devout pre-tribulation rapture guy, agrees that Luke 17 cannot describe a pre-trib rapture. He would agree this is the day of the Lord. Pursue the pre-trib rapture elsewhere, he would say, all right? These all describe events at the return of Christ and immediately at the initiation of His literal earthly reign. Consider this then. Consider this. On that day, since the heavens and the earth will be destroyed, and Jesus says the one who is standing at the mill is taken, 
the earth is destroyed and those standing at the mill, one is taken. Who's taking them? Who's taking them? Matthew 24, 31 seems clear enough. They are taken by the angels. They gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other, says Matthew on that day. So just as the days of Noah and Lot, those removed and taken are the saints taken by the angels into the sky, the air for safety. Well, safety from what? Safety from what? Just as in the days of Noah and Lot, those who are left remaining behind are left to judgment. Judgment. The elect, the beloved of God, grabbed and taken out before the judgment comes. Um, Folks, believers who are alive at the end of the tribulation period will be taken. They will be taken. Uh, What then does Peter suggest believers should anticipate on that day? Well, 2 Peter 3 verse 13 says, Clearly, in that day, we are according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You look forward to that? A new heavens, a new earth where righteousness dwells? Sign me up. And according to all of this, we are expectantly looking for Christ to return and and rule in righteousness in a new heavens and on a new earth. Sounds exciting. It should sound exciting. And and folks, that is the promise I'm looking for. Peter says, we look for the hastening of that day. That's what I'm looking for. Here's the rub, if you haven't already figured it out. This new heavens and new earth are represented as appearing the day of Christ's return at the beginning of His earthly kingdom. Follow me? This does not suggest a new heaven and earth occurring a thousand years after Christ's return. John MacArthur if you listen to him preach this message, and I would encourage you to do so, he's outstanding on this passage. If you listen to him preach this passage, he, he really kind of walks a tightrope here. Really walks a tightrope, saying that, well, at Christ's return, he acknowledges that does initiate the eternal state. He says that. But not a new heavens and a new earth. He calls it a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. And this is because his eschatology delays the new heavens and new earth until the end of the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. That's why he arranges it that way. What's the problem with that? You know how much I agree with John MacArthur all the time. What is the problem with that? The problem is that Peter says the new heavens and new earth appear on the day of the Lord as the elements of the old heaven and old earth are melted down and destroyed with intense heat. In fact, Peter's Greek 
word order, a new heaven and a new earth, is identical to Revelation chapter 21. Identical word order. Different tense of a couple of the words. Same word order. So MacArthur proposes Luke 21, which we've been studying here, the return of the Lord, does initiate the eternal state, but not the eternal, eternal state, if I'm understanding him correctly. All right? Folks, when I read this, I spoke to you a few weeks ago about this, that I had a couple questions. I see the new heavens and earth arriving at the beginning of Christ's earthly reign, not at the end of his thousand-year reign. So, this is one of the questions that uh, I asked Pastor Weiler to take to his professor when he studied eschatology last semester uh, from Dallas Seminary. You remember, uh, if you were here, I brought that up, and I'm like, I got a couple of questions. I sent him up four or five, and I think he got two or three answered. Um, this was one of them. I said, please ask your eschatology professor, because when I was at Dallas Seminary, it, it didn't occur to me. I, I just had not spent enough time in it to really be able to present a question with, with intelligence. And for the professor, I was like, please explain. And this is where he waffled a little bit. Not Pastor Weiler. The professor. The professor. Um, I wanted to know if the day of the Lord is Christ's return, and it is, and it is a day in which the old heavens and old earth pass away with intense heat being destroyed, and it is, why would we delay the new heavens and earth for a thousand years? Where are we going to live? I'm going to need a place to live. Old earth is destroyed. His first response, well, was this, that, well, that day of the Lord, you know, it might be, it could be an indefinite extended period of time. Really? How many extended indefinite periods of time do you have that come upon you like a thief? You know, is it a slow motion thief? This is where I told you in my message a couple weeks ago when Gerald pressed it a little bit, uh, the prof- professor acknowledged he isn't sure how this works out. It's not just the professor. I mean, he, he represents the systematic theology department, right? And we talked a couple weeks ago about this. There's disagreement in this stuff, right? Some aren't exactly certain how it all works out. Alistair Begg, John MacArthur disagree on it. They remain friends, all right? But I had that question. Here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. These passages describe a moment in time. It's a day that comes like lightning. A day in which Peter says, a new heavens and a new earth are established immediately at Christ's return. It is the day of the Lord. And as I cautioned two weeks ago, you know, some challenges exist interpreting the book of Revelation. We've talked about that. Some insist we must read apocalyptic literature, like Revelation, as a rigid chronological series of events, a timeline. Uh, I'm not an expert. 
But I am suspicious that apocalyptic literature is not written to strictly reinforce a timeline. Encyclopedia Britannica says this in defining apocalyptic language. It says apocalyptic language is lavish in its use of fantastic imagery, frequently using riddles and numerical speculations. GotQuestions.org, which you might be familiar with, a very reputable online site. Got some great stuff there. Again, I don't agree with them all the time, but 95, 97% of the time, they're, they're right on. And they've got some great stuff. In fact, if you want a little info on the definition of or the nature of apocalyptic literature, I printed the whole thing off, but here's a quote from it. GotQuestions.org says, quote, Apocalyptic literature is a specific form of prophecy largely involving symbols and imagery and predicting disaster and destruction. Apocalyptic literature frequently contains strange descriptions and bizarre imagery, the terrible iron-toothed beast of Daniel chapter 7, the long-haired locusts with men's faces in Revelation chapter 9, the four-faced creatures of Ezekiel chapter 1. Apocalyptic literature involves descriptions of the end of the world and typically depicts grandiose cataclysmic events, unquote. Folks, many, not all, not all, but many theologians conclude that Revelation uh, is depicting, is not depicting sequential order from beginning to end. Many theologians uh, believe that, not all. Some interpret Revelation as a repeated cycle up to three cycles of visions depicting a recurring theme multiple times with different visions, but this theme, of course, of victory after battle and Christ, the, the, the one on the white horse coming and saving us. Um, All I want to propose is we need to seek chronological underpinning support elsewhere, okay? Um, Matthew, Luke, and Peter are great places to start. Great places to start. Uh, You know, I don't claim to be an expert on interpreting apocalypse, but my understanding of apocalyptic literature includes more of a looking at paintings in a gallery, all right? Artistic representations of individual events, like the collection of frescoes that are painted, uh, uh, frescoes in the in the Sistine Chapel. All right, the paintings on the walls and on the ceiling, the the magnificence of them. You you know you go to this wall and there's there's a great tribulation. You go over to this wall and you see seven churches, and back on that wall in the other room there's a there's a there's a king, a king of kings riding in on a white horse. You might look on the ceiling, see a majestic painting of new heavens and a new earth. And, and, and then you're left to, with a kind of a challenge. It's like, okay, uh, I kind of see here. How does this all fit together? Follow me? There is order to Revelation. There is a, don't, I'm not saying it's disorder. I'm not saying it's disorder, but many believe Revelation is not written in a woodenly, rigid, precise, uh, 
chronological order from beginning to end. We should give considerable more weight to the Gospels and to the Epistles when determining chronology. Okay? They are written in historic narrative, recording actual events like the Gospels. Uh, The Epistles are generally written in prose. That means straightforward language that you can understand. That's like the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus. You can understand them. You can, you can grasp them right away when you read. Straightforward. Um, we should give great weight to them, especially when they harmonize. Especially when they harmonize. Because that which is clear, prose, is always used to interpret and explain that which is less clear, apocalyptic apocalyptic are you, are you with me follow me we've been through this before but it's important very important um, special deference special deference should be granted toward peter who before describing the second coming of christ says he's stirring up in his readers stirring up their minds by way of reminder that we should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and by the commandment of the lord and Savior. Peter insists that his unfolding of events is the correct portrayal of what the prophets and the commandments of Christ were, spoken by his apostles. Uh, they jive, right? They jive. He said, I jive with Jesus. And he says that his epistle is fulfillment of the words of the holy prophets. Peter speaks with with clear apostolic authority. Um, So we know, or when we know all of this, and we look at Luke 21, knowing this now and looking back to Luke 21, let's, let's flush that passage out, okay? Let's flush that passage out. On that day, verse 25, on that day, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations. In perplexity at the the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The created realm is going to be tossed into a tumult. Convulsions as as he's... Final minutes, perhaps hours, as they unfold. The seas are going to roar. Christians alive at that time, they need to be prepared to know what this is, what this unfolding of events is ahead of time, so that we are not distressed, but so that we're dressed in readiness. What has been the theme of Jesus throughout the gospel this whole time we've been in it? Be ready. That day comes at an hour you don't know. Be dressed in readiness. I'm coming over and over and over again. You see it in the apostles. Be ready. Be ready. The day comes like a thief. Who are they talking to? The church. Be ready. Be ready. Um, I think, I think, saints will be yanked up from the field and the mill at those very first moments at Christ's return, you know, almost immediately. Verse 28 says, when these things begin to take place on that day, 
when these things begin to take place. So when we observe signs, when we see marvels that, that are just completely out of character with the laws of physics, Christians will know. This is it. We'll know what happens. What are we to do at that very moment? What, what does Jesus tell us to do? Straighten up. Lift up your heads. Because your redemption draweth nigh. Back in Acts chapter 1 during Jesus' ascension, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going away, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go up. Just the same way. So be ready. Be ready to look up. Stretch out your neck. It's going to come the invasion of the body snatchers. Jesus will send forth His angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky or the heavens to the other. Jesus says, straighten up and look up. Apparently the angels are going to need unhindered access to your head. Go in and snatch it out. I, I, don't, I don't know. Be ready. It's going to be a moment of redemption when believers are safely taken up into the sky by the angels to allow Christ unimpeded access to destroy the world, to judge the world. He will pour out His wrath of judgment upon all the earth and all of its inhabitants. For, for the general population alive at that time, the general unbelievers, it's going to be seen of, a scene of absolute horror. Absolute horror. Literally, folks, some people's hearts will stop beating. They're going to be so horrified. It's going to be shock. They'll be fainting in fear and perplexed at what is happening around them, says Matthew and Luke. Luke says there will be dismay among the nations, so this is worldwide. Matthew says all tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Folks, that is an Old Testament promise, by the way, from Daniel chapter 7, that he's going to come in the clouds. Revelation 1 verse 7 says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. It's the day of the Lord. Worldwide. Everyone. All tribes. Those who pierced him. Those all will mourn on this day. It's going to be worldwide. It's going to be worldwide. As unbelievers shrink, as they cower, as unbelievers shrink away, as they turn away, turn away from Jesus and faint, folks, Christians should confidently look up. We should be looking up at this time of His coming. 1 John 2, verse 28. Little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence 
and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. You mean no shrinking away for us. Listen to Hebrews 10 verse 37. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Once again, this is also describing the second coming. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are those who have faith in the preserving of our soul. We aren't going to shrink back. Not going to be a day we're destined for wrath, but a day we are destined for salvation. On this day of the Lord, as the elect are yanked up head first by the angels' kids now, probably by the hand. Like when they took a lot out of Sodom, maybe by the hand. I don't know. But it's the final harvest. And unbelievers will, unbelievers will shrink back into the wrath and destruction left behind when all the lights go out, when the sun, moon, and stars fail. The prophet Amos, in a rebuke to unbelieving Israel, he said in Amos 5, verse 18, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be a darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home and leans his hand against the wall to rest and a snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Sun, moon, and stars will fail. They will fail, stop giving off their light. But for God's chosen elect, what a glorious day that will be. Are you, are you tired of the garbage that you're, you're forced to consume in this world? The garbage we have to watch night after night. God told Isaiah 38 verse 3, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. That's going to be a good day. So for believers, folks, this is a day to look forward to. This is a good day. The great theologian John Calvin writes, The same day which brings wrath and vengeance to the reprobate brings goodwill and redemption to believers. Same day. Same day. Some common elements to notice in these passages we've looked at. Some common elements here. We sang many of them in our songs earlier. This has been written about much. Common elements in the day of the Lord. Well, first, it's written there, the day of the Lord, in most of them. says. So, it's a day of the Lord, says Matthew. It's a day when all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds or on the clouds of the sky with power and glory. We know from Luke and Peter it is a day of judgment and of fearsome wrath. Matthew adds that he will send forth his angels with a great 
trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. 1 Corinthians 15 says it's the last trumpet. It's a day of our redemption. So this gives us a pretty good picture of what the return of Christ is going to look like, all right? Think think of this language. This is where the rubber really meets the road. Rubber really meets the road. Do we see similar language involving angels? A trumpet. A gathering of God's elect into the sky anywhere else. Do we find a reference to this coming of the Lord uh, anywhere else? Do we find a reference to the day of the Lord anywhere else? Folks, we do. We do. Uh, if you would, p- please, perhaps, you'd take a moment and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, I'd like you to turn there now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading from verse 13. This is the Apostle Paul now. Apostle Paul comes in. We've had Peter, Luke, Mark, Matthew. Uh, Matthew. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That is, those who have passed away, fallen asleep. So that you do not grieve as, the rest, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then all who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we always uh, shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these lords. In, In the context, we have to ask, what is Paul explaining here in the context? Well, it's said to describe the coming of the Lord But let's keep reading for another clue, all right? Let's continue to chapter 5. This is another one of those unfortunate chapter breaks, all right? That were put in hundreds of years after the Bible was initially written. Now, as to the time and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, the destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. Why? Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, that is eternal wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul here describing the coming of the Lord, arriving like a thief, the sound of a trumpet with angels gathering us into the sky, um, calls it the day of the Lord. It's said by Paul we should know full well 
this is the day of the Lord that comes like a thief. He's explained it to us. Say, shouldn't, this shouldn't really be difficult. Boy, some of you look a little peaked. Maybe somebody's seen a ghost. Why is that? Why is that? It's because many of you, like, like I was, like I was in seminary, have always been taught that 1 Thessalonians 4, that's the flagship evidence of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church occurring at least seven years previous to Christ's return. That's what we've always been taught. Now, I'm not going to tell you what to believe. The timing of the rapture is not in our statement of faith. It's not a requirement for membership or salvation, thankfully. You're intelligent people. Is a pre-tribulation rapture what 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 describe? Or does Paul portray this as a rapture at the coming of our Lord in the day of the Lord? One that Matthew 24 verse 29 says comes immediately after the tribulation of those days. Folks, this has been a lot of material to digest. I hope you jotted these down. If not, I'll get you them to you. Um, review them. Read them in context. I've, I've been pouring over this for months. Since even before we went through Luke 17 back in November. So I'm not going to force an answer upon you. At least until you've had five minutes to get a drink of water. Our Lord is coming. And that day is going to come like a thief. It's going to be a glorious day. So Jesus and his apostles warned again and again, be dressed in readiness. Be ready. It will come upon you like a thief. We need to be prepared. Um, You prepare... You're ready foremost by acknowledging a few things. Number one, that you are separated from God by sin. Your unrighteousness separates from you God, uh, from God. So you first need to acknowledge that that you deserve that wrath of judgment that is coming. Repentance is the acknowledgement of sin, a turning from sin, a turning to Christ. Trusting that God's Son lived a perfect sinless life, perfect sinless life, did not deserve to die, but nonetheless offered Himself to suffer that wrath of God and die for you in your place. He died for your sins on a cross, the penalty you deserved if you will believe in Him. Then He rose from the dead on the third day. He's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. Folks, He was... His resurrection was witnessed by hundreds. Hundreds. And through his body, Jesus offers you life and reconciliation to God the Father to be ready for that day. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Let's pray.